Let me just start off by welcoming uh, Dr. John Gatorna uh, to the um, Supply Chain Next podcast. It's the kickoff to the year of 2020 and a kickoff to the decade of the supply chain. Couldn't be more thrilled of having someone of John's uh, stature and uh, um, uh, position in the space of uh, supply chain activities on a global basis. And we're going to get into it right away here. And and, and welcome, John. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Richard. And uh, great great to be here and always like to... uh, uh, discuss a supply chain with uh, people like yourself who who are passionate about it. Well, it is uh, it, it's an honor to have you on here, and it's it's especially someone who is as credited as you are, and you know you are you are uh, one of the globe's thought leaders in the space, and becoming even more important. And I'm sure that's reflected in all the work that you're doing and the busyness that you're getting as well too. So yep. you know, with that, I I just I'd love to start off a, a little bit with just you know a little bit of background on on who you are and and kind of. Know how you got into the space, and you know, give us gives us an overview of Dr. John. Okay. Well, just quickly, I mean, I started life as a young engineer, to tell you the truth. Um, I, I did uh, civil engineering at Melbourne University, um, but, but um, after I think nearly nine or ten years of that, I got a bit sick of it. I, I worked on road construction, um, and then I went and worked for two American companies, FMC Corporation, and for, for Sperry Rand uh, Vickers Detroit Hydraulics. But um, along the way, I, I just felt maybe engineering is not for me. So I uh, did an MBA um, here in Australia. And at that time, met a guy that came from the US as a Fulbright scholar, a guy called uh, uh, Dr. Um, Doctoroff, Mark Doctoroff, who was a Canadian, actually. And funnily enough, 40 years later, a couple of years ago, I met him again. Uh, and he had taught for the first time an elective on what was called in those days, in the late 70s, Uh, or mid-70s, distribution management was called in those days. Um, And then I was a bit inspired by all that and um, uh, looking for something to to, uh, change to. And I went home one day and said to my wife, I'm just newly married, a couple of young kids. I'm going to change. I'm going to move away from my career to a hobby. And we're going to, it's called supply chain. And I want to do, do that by not just, starting you know at the bottom of the rung again you know in a say purchasing manager's position or something i'm going to look around the world and find a place to go and do my phd uh, and really sort of leapfrog into it and at those in in those times we're talking in the mid 70s there wasn't a lot of places you know there's harvard and ohio state michigan state and um some places in europe INSEAD, and a place called cranfield university in england and ultimately i went there because it, it was a better fit for me because it was a very much an applied type university. They had grants from Rolls-Royce and, and uh, you know, the, a lot of the university ran on private money rather than pure public money. Mm-hmm. So um, we, we head off, we, we grabbed, a, grabbed a, the family and went off to on a one-way ticket to England in 1975 and stayed for five years. Um, and, uh, Actually, would never have come back, I think, except the English winters. If you've ever experienced an English winter, it's uh, after five of them. It's a bit bleak. Yeah, it's a bit bleak. So we came back to Australia and um, I, um, you know, the only way I could get back was to take an academic position. But after a few years, I came to the conclusion that um, the academic law wasn't for me. So I started my own consulting um, but most of my time then was outside of Australia because the big firms that I was starting to te- deal with in the 80s were, were all overseas. So I was traveling a lot. With DHL alone, I went to 50 countries in five years. Um, and, and really, it, it was during this period that I started to think about this idea of logistics and 
and it was starting to be called supply chain too. Um, you know, it, it, there's not much theory here and mm -hmm. it, it's a pretty operational field. And if we keep going this route, we're, we're never going to get any, any real progress. Cause if, if you can't conceptualize something, you, you can't turn it into, you, it, it doesn't have any predictive capa um, capability. So it was in the eighties that I then really started to think about how to conceptualize um, the supply chain and, and make it, uh, you know, make it, uh, such that it become a more scientific field of endeavor. And out, out of curiosity, John, sorry to interrupt, but but yeah. one of the things that is you're sort of describing that out of all the things coming out of MBA school, you know, what what was it about supply chain versus say finance or marketing or you know other out, you know, operational aspects of the business that drew you to supply chain? Why why supply chain? It, look, it's a it's a um, it's a combination of everything. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just like you know, people say to me, you know, I want to get into the supply chain. I say, fine. I say, well, but I've never had any experience. You just said that to me. It doesn't matter. I mean, supply chainers are not born. They're, they're made, you know, and mm -hmm. people come in from all directions. And it's the same with when you're studying supply chain at universities, the good ones. You'll, you'll study finance. You'll get into cost accounting. Uh, you'll you'll do some marketing. Um, you'll do some operations. You'll do some sustainability. It's 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 the application side of supply chain that I really love. You know, it's not a it's not a pure theoretical chemistry physics type of world. If you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So that's and, why and, I like it. Is it fair to say that it's the business within the business? It it is. It is actually. It's it's. Um, I use the term. It's the central nervous system of mm -hmm. any business. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's like the it's like the arteries in our bodies or the, or the, the central nervous system in our bodies. If, if you don't have that, uh, then business has got, is not going anywhere. You can have all the marketing and, and all the finance and all the, you know, all those other functions can be sitting around doing lots of stuff. But if you haven't got supply chain driving it, uh, then uh, you're dead mm -hmm. in the water. And that's mm -hmm. why I, I, you know, I sent you that paper because I wrote that short paper article for DHL for their uh, delivered magazine and I was trying to make the point that supply chain is far more pervasive than any of us understand mm -hmm. and and during the GFC for instance uh, in 2008 uh, global financial crisis we came within an inch of really m a major collapse the 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 because the banks weren't dealing with each other and they weren't you know looking after each other's credits etc we're getting to a stage where people couldn't buy goods and move goods. And we almost got to a stage where goods around the world trade was going to stop. Mm -hmm. And if that stopped, we were really going to be in serious trouble. It didn't quite happen. We got out of it before that, but that's, that's the importance of supply chain. It, it, it is, it is life on this planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so is that, so sorry to kind of screw mm -hmm. with your train of thought, but as you were coming into the eighties and nineties and you were kind of getting pulled into supply chain, what, yep. what happened then? What, what progressed then? Well, uh, very, very fortunately, I, uh, I formed a small group of people, uh, d disparate backgrounds. And one of them was a guy that had a PhD in, in culture. And, um, uh, and so out of all that, that's when we formed our first framework. We called it dynamic. Well, in those days, we called it strategic alignment. But in fact, we later on changed it to the terms of dynamic alignment. That's what the title of a lot of those books are. But what, what, what alignment's about is, is it's, a, it's a business concept. It's not a supply chain concept. It says simply, look, if you want to make money or if you want to perform well as a business or as a you know, not-for-profit, you have to line your business up um, with, with those customers in the marketplace. And 
it, the marketplace has got all sorts of people in it, competitors and government, but it's got people called customers. And we've got to get to know and understand those customers better. And, and then once we understand those customers, we've got to put value propositions to them. And then once we have those value propositions, we've got to go down into our own organization and start shaping subcultures in the business that will drive cost or drive innovation or drive speed or drive whatever you want. And then of course, the last level of that is, is leadership. Mm -hmm. And so out of, in the early eighties, we formed this conceptual sort of model. And then for the last 30 years, uh, through my uh, applied work in probably 500 companies and around the world in every industry. And you can imagine um, we've been virtually um, making that, that original conceptual model more granular and proving it out. And that's what we've done. We've really spent the last 30 years proving that the dynamic alignment actually is right. And that the one size fits all approach that was around in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, is absolutely flawed and um, is um, is now you know almost unusable. Mm -hmm. you, you've really got to get to, and that's where this idea of outside in came from. Instead mm -hmm. of you know sort of sitting inside our businesses, looking at our customers and saying, "Oh, I think I know what they want. This is what we'll do for them." Mm -hmm. We said, "No, you've got to go to your customers. You've got to." Uh, think about them in a different way, put yourself in their mind, look back towards the supply base and try and, and then you've got to understand that there are different buying behaviors amongst your customer base. And then you've, you've got to really take that information and insight and retrofit and uh, uh, re-engineer or um, reverse engineer your business so that you come up with the right combination of processes and technology and people and organization design and all the things that we talk about. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's got to be done from outside in, not inside out. Fair, absolutely fair point. And, and that sort of leads into then sort of the transition um, that I wanted to get into as you kind of progressed through these 30 years and we'll get to the yep. writing stage and the books that you get to. Um, yep. You know, another question I have, and you kind of sort of answered it here already, is the commonalities. You talked about 500 companies, you talked about working across all different industries. Yep. Um, and, not, and one size doesn't fit all. However, the framework of supply chain best practices. Yes. Is that applicable across industries? Is that Absolutely. more horizontal? Okay. Absolutely, it is. Um, I mean, the, the, where we get stuck, where companies get stuck is that they, they get it wrong from day one because when they segment their customers, if you're a, if you're a, um, an engineer, um, you know, industrial company, you, you may segment your customers along what we call institutional lines. So you mm -hmm. say, I've got, I've got wholesale customers. I've got, um, I've got panel builders. I've got um, you know, machine shops. Uh, I've got electricians. Well, quite frankly, you know that 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 institutional definition is rubbish because I can show you. Let's let's take beer. It's an easier one for you, mm -hmm. right? Um, companies like breweries will say, "Well, we sell beer to um, wholesalers. We sell it to five-star hotels. We sell it to restaurants. You know, we sell it to airlines." Well, hang on. That those distinctions don't mean anything because I can show you an airline that buys beer the same way as a wholesaler, mm -hmm. or buys or a wholesaler that buys beer the same way as a major hotel chain. So, so the the wonderful thing about breaking down and getting rid of this institution, the, the institutional definitions are usually useful to sales because they like to know, you know, how much I sold to an airline, how much I sold to, you know. Uh, retailers, wholesalers, and so on. But it's of no use at all when you're designing supply chains because mm -hmm. supply chains are agnostic mm -hmm. about where it goes. They just, they're inter supply chains are just interested in 
the commonalities of how people want to buy. Mm -hmm. And, and what we did is we went right back into the psychological literature and over time working with lots of companies, we found that there were 16 archetypes um, of, of different buying behaviors in the human race. Uh, it doesn't apply if you come from Mars or Venus, mm -hmm. but certainly on the, in the human race, we're, we're a lot more similar than we think. And we kept working on this. And what we then found, because you can't have 16 supply chains because it's, uh, if you look at a normal distribution, that means that some of the supply chains are very, very exceptional. And then there are a few in the middle that take a lot, which is the, which is the, which is the way it is anyhow. But what we, what we found is that out of that 16, and this is, this is the thing that took us 30 years to work out, um, uh, of that 16, you will normally find four or five supply chains in any product market combination that will give you about an 80% fit to your market. Mm. That, that, that's the crucial bit because um, now we know that any four or five of those 16, and generally speaking, it's, it's similar. There's, you know, there's, there's collaborative customers, there's um, the lean customers, the agile customers, the, the campaign project customers, and the, those customers who are looking for innovative solutions because they've got massive problems. And we, so we, we actually were able to work out that the, the real answer was probably five um, uh, supply chains would give us about an 80% fit in most uh, categories. Mm -hmm. uh, now that varies a little bit from time to time, but, uh, but that's a pretty much uh, pretty right. Right, and, right. But you're right. I mean, it, it's not about exceptions. It's about just different combinations of standard things give you unique things. Mm -hmm. and, right. and, and that leads right into, so as you were kind of going through this, and it seems like the, your, your history and your experience and then getting to when you started publishing uh, your book commencing around 2006 with Living Supply Chains, yep. that, you know, it's like the first 20 years was almost kind of getting the groundwork down to what is the supply chain. It was, yeah. And then you started getting into writing books going from living supply chains in 2006 to, you know, what's coming out this year, transforming supply chains. Uh, if that's yep. not published already or to be published this year. No, it's, it's published. It's in, yep. it's, uh, it's already out, transforming yep. supply chains. Okay. Yeah. And, and, yep. and, and, and in the middle, you got your dynamic supply chain alignment yep. and dynamic supply chains. Yep. So where I'm headed is, as you were kind of establishing, you know, the learning and, and, and sort of the baseline for what the supply chain was and kind of beginning to define it. And then it led you into beginning to write these books. Yes. Tell me about what it is that you started, what, what, what did you want to accomplish in kind of putting the books out there? I mean, there, there's a theme in there and I'll get to it, but I mean, there, mm. it really seems like there's something you were trying to get done from each book, these, you know, three, four books. Um, yes. And, and there's a progression here uh, that seems to be happening naturally. Could you talk to that? Yeah, look, it's it's been a learning uh, um, a learning process over time. Uh, what I was really wanting to make sure that is that we we documented and got down in in, in writing, as it were, um, our thinking as it evolved, mm -hmm. uh, because the original concept was was pretty thin, and then we had to work to fill it out. Uh, the fascinating thing was, as you said, the first book, which tried to you know, capture what we'd been, what we'd learnt in the first uh, 20 years, almost uh, to, from 85 to 2006, living supply chains. I thought that was a brilliant title because I honestly believe that supply chains are living ecosystems, you know, living organisms. But um, we, I'll tell you a little story about that. I, I went on a bit of a, um, a tour uh, uh, to, to the US because uh, my publisher said, look, we want you to go to the US. It's the biggest um, 
uh, English speaking breeding market in the world. And we went over and I went to all sorts of companies like Crown Corning and, you know, various electronic companies and, and uh, AMR and all that. And I was absolutely shocked and, and, and Procter and & Gamble and so on. And I was absolutely shocked because everywhere I went, the reaction I was getting was, John, what, what are you talking about? What's living got to do with supply chains? <laughs> you know, that was the reaction I got. And, um, you know, I realized then that, that, that people had completely missed the, the point that supply chains are in fact driven by people. Yes, they're, they're, they're facilitated by technology and the technology's got better and better and everything. But there are people all along the supply chain, you know, at the customer end, at the supply end, um, inside our own businesses, uh, making decisions every day, make or buy, um, getting things done, moving things around. So I would have said 60 to 70% of what goes on in supply chains is about human decision-making and behavior. And, and here I was hearing people telling me, John, no, it's not, it's not about that. It's about technology. Technology is going to save the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's why um, I talked to my publisher in the Nick, when we went to uh, 2010 and 2015, we moved away from the word living um, to the word dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I don't think it captures it as well. To tell you the truth. Now, the funny thing is that in the last, what was it, 15 years, um, uh, it, my colleagues in the States and elsewhere have, have come around to the view, yes, you're right, there's a lot more work. We, we, we don't understand human behavior. We don't understand culture. Mm -hmm. All, a lot of the disasters in implementing good plans have been because we didn't understand the culture inside the businesses that have resisted change, etc. And so uh, that's starting to happen now. And that's led us, therefore, now naturally on to transforming supply chains, which mm -hmm. is really about, you know, well, now we can start to blueprint things we want to do but we still got to get them done. What are the, what are the clever ways of transforming the business from A to B mm -hmm. uh, to, 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 keep, to keep abreast and, to, and actually to keep alive in the sort of disruptive world that we're in now? And, and sort of as you're doing, I'm going to come to transforming supply chains because I think that's where a lot of people in, in supply chain next and in in, yeah. in sort of our listeners are really looking forward now into the decade of the supply chain as we're coming into it sort of year one here, 2020. Um, yeah. But looking back again a little bit here in these conversations you have, who, who are you speaking to early on? Was it supply chain leaders or CEOs or CFOs? Like who was the audience that you were interacting with? And, you know, 20 years ago, was the whole supply chain conversation kind of, like you said, met with not resistance, but and not even skepticism, more like, well, why are we talking about this? That's not sales. It's not marketing. Mm. It's not super important. And then how has that changed to the same people you speak to today over your career? Look, it, it, it really, for me, it, um, my, my thinking sort of turned from what you might call dynamic to transforming sort of thinking, um, probably around about 2012. Mm -hmm. um, and I met, um, Annette Clayton, who um, at that time had just moved from Dell. She'd been working for Michael Dell and she'd moved, she'd been headhunted across to Snyder Electric, the French mm -hmm. electromechanical company. And she had read my original book, Living Supply Chains, and she really liked the idea of the customer segmentation, behavioral segmentation. And she'd been doing a bit of that work at Dell. And then she, then she moved to, to um, this huge, um, uh, I think it was 24 billion euro business. And, you know, it was one of those classic bricks and mortar businesses that make 
brilliant product and it's got, you know, 250 factories and 300 DCs and it's very much in that physical world, which is mm -hmm. different to the world she came from, uh, although she'd previously been at General Motors as well. And so we got together and she was the one that was pushing me and saying, well, John, how, do we, how, do, how should I go about this? I mean, how do I get things moving? I've, she'd been there about 12 months and she formed a view, but she wasn't too sure just how she would kickstart the whole thing. And I said, well, look, why don't we apply a whole dynamic alignment thinking to your business? And, mm -hmm. and, and that's what we did over a period of years. We, we started with a pilot in, a, in the Pacific and we, did, we segmented all the customers and we did a network model of their business. Mm -hmm. And then we took the, the so we built scenarios for the model from the actual customer uh, research, if you know what I mean. So we connected di directly what the customers were telling us uh, with, you know, testing it in the model. And it was a huge success. Mm -hmm. And and so then she said, well, let's go. So we subsequently over the years, we then went to, um, Brazil to South America to North America to India to China and in, by that time you know it was 2017 or 18 and they then took on Europe themselves but and then they started to realize then well the next thing and this is where we were getting to in the conversation once you know what you've got to do and you've solved some of the problems of um, uh, you know implementing change uh, you you then come back against the age-old problem of, yeah, but digitization, how do we make it work? And it always ends up being a problem with master data. I don't know whether your previous um, speakers have talked about this, but the biggest single um, uh, inhibitor, if you like, of, of getting on today with the things we want to do and getting fully digitized and, and making good decisions and coping with all the rapid change is um, you know getting the data out in, in a way that we can use it and so she then started to uh, she hired her, her own team of modelers her own team of uh, uh, analysts uh, analytic people and she's been working on this uh, digitization now for about five years so so that's really it was it was that inspiration that came from a what I would regard as one of the best people in the world in terms of her and she didn't really come from supply chain originally she was um came from manufacturing to tell you the truth which seems to be again a common theme it's like you know, like you said supply chain people aren't aren't they're sort of they fall into it right they're yeah, sort of drawn into it right it's not they something do. you go into school for or i you know even no. personally i i certainly didn't <laughs> I no, fell, you, you, fell you, into you, it as well you cobble it together with a, a whole lot of different things and then you you know you didn't get a bit of work experience and you talk to different people and gradually you build your knowledge up and that that's really the 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 sort of final answer to your previous question, why did I do all this? Well, I was trying to build a bit of a legacy of knowledge transfer. I was trying to make sure that any knowledge that we gained along the way wouldn't be lost when I got, I retired or, you know, I left the field. I wanted to make sure I'd leave all this stuff out there for other people to, to build on. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, I can say already you've left an incredible body of work and will continue to leave an incredible body of work with all of, all the stuff that you're you know, planning to do over the, the ensuing years and certainly in this decade of supply chain. It feels like to me, you know, it's it, and even for you, it's got to be an incredible validation to have spent the last you know 30 some odd years focused on this. And now all of a sudden the world has waking up to what you've been working on for 30 years. Right. And yep. recognizes yep. importance. Exactly. You know, it's it, look, it's just. It's a wonderful feeling to tell you the truth, because I must admit, um, if you look at the history and you, 
you go through the sort of 60s and 70s and and 80s and 90s we, we at one stage people i think it was in the 80s were talking about, interminably about systems integration and nothing was happening because no the systems weren't talking to each other we weren't making any progress and it was getting all pretty boring and then the thing that changed the world for us in the supply chain was the was really you know post 2000 i think when um, we really started to realize that the internet was there it, it, it could it could allow us to touch base with anyone we wanted to we could get around problems of organization design we could get around problems of of technology and so in many ways the the internet um and and you know and the digitization that followed from that was the thing that um operationalized if you like the concept mm -hmm. of supply chain which up to that time uh, was was really being impeded the progress was being impeded by confusion and technology organization design problems it problems and all the things that you you know we've talked about mm -hmm. and so that that then leads into so if if we're in that transformative um evolutionary step right again moving into the decade of the supply chain um yep. and you've already kind of touched on it a little bit but um you know it it, it it seems to me again that a lot of the you know past few decades has really been about just recognition of the supply chain even under yes. understanding it in in i'll call it an analog sense right yes because it yes. works it's there companies obviously are buying things to uh, run the business and fuel the business and then getting output, whether it's product or, or things that the business does. Um, yes. so, so clearly people have been able to kind of, you know, do what's required to, that's necessary. However, as we think of transformation now, think of it as, you know, I'll use catchy terms like supply chain 2.0 or whatever you want to call it. Mm. Um, what is, le how should I phrase this? Within the transforming um, that's about to happen and is happening, What's leading that? Clearly, technology is driving it. But what kind of what are you seeing as commonalities in that the beginning of that transforming journey? And I think you sort yeah. of touched on it, but I'd love to kind of you know okay. double click on that a bit. The look the um there's what's really driving it, or put it this way, what's making it more urgent is the disruptive, volatile world that we we've moved into because. If you go back to the business in the 70s and 80s, I make the point that you pretty much didn't have to get out of bed to make a month to make money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are a lot of universities around with people's names on honor boards uh, saying how wonderful they were as leaders. But actually, they weren't doing much at all. They were just going along with the growth. Growth hides a lot of things. Mm -hmm. It hides a multitude of sins. And what's happened in the last 10 or 15 years is that we've moved into this sort of volatile world. We've got all this uncertainty um, and it, it's really thrown people a lot because, you know, forecasts no longer work the way they used to. Um, and we have these ups and downs. And, and so the question is, well, how do we build a business for the future that can be sustainable in that sort. And of course, sustainability issues coming in now and they're coming back strongly. How do we build a business that, to proof it against or even even enjoy living in that sort of world, if I mm -hmm. can use that too, right? Um, I, had a t I, I had a colleague years ago, um, his name was Colin Benjamin, who introduced me to a term called tensegrity. Mm -hmm. um, or tensile integrity. And what, if I can explain that to you in terms of a balloon, if you blow a balloon up, right, and, and the pressure on the inside of that balloon is, is 
is greater than the pressure on the outside. So the balloon stays up, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you get, if you start pressing in on that balloon, and in other words, the external pressure is greater than the internal pressure, you can crush, you can sort of crush the balloon, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening today that companies have built a, a world up which is hierarchical, it's slow moving in many cases, it's bricks and mortar. Um, and, and these companies are finding it very difficult to change. At the same time, the outside world is changing very much more rapidly. And that's why the, there's now a huge um, premium on saying, well, geez, what are we gonna do to actually live in this world? Because this world of volatility and disruption is the, is the new norm. Mm -hmm. And so if we just sit there and hope that it's going to get better, we're gonna die anyhow. And you can see a lot of companies already had died, right? So, uh, and so that's where I think the major thrust is coming from. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of almost a burning platform um, mm -hmm. that, that companies have got, and because they, they, they now recognise that that, and and they maybe they don't recognise, but the point I've recognised is that you can only fight volatility with volatility. Mm -hmm. In other words, you've got to create things inside the business, uh, fast change, you, you need people who are comfortable with that. You need to create certain disruption and uncomfortableness inside the business. Uh, all these things w will then allow you uh, to, to exist in the world outside. And companies like Zara have done this. You know, I mean, what Zara has done, and I use the term clock speed here, the rhythm of that organization is about a 15 day rhythm. So from the from the time they just stand around as a group, multidisciplinary group inside their business and talk about what the next launch is going to be in 15 days time, what sort of, uh, what are the designs are going to be? They choose the designs. From that time through the actual pull the material in, cut the patterns, manufacture it and ship it out is, is 15 days. Oh and that 15 day cycle is at, at least half of their next nearest competitor. Mm -hmm. And it means too, that it doesn't matter what happens in the outside world, 15 days, quite frankly, if you're turning your business in 15 days, nothing much can happen that can catch you. you so you don't end up having stockouts, right? Mm -hmm. Sorry, you have stockouts, but that's a good thing because people will then wait till the next 15 days, but you don't have overstocks, you don't have markdowns, you don't mm -hmm. have all those sorts of inventory obsolescence and all that sort of stuff that's a problem right so so this idea of clock speed uh, has implications for the way you run the business you've got to have uh, you've got to have digital information available you've got to be able to make quicker decisions you you need people who are prepared to make quicker decisions you no longer have committee meetings you know it, it, there's a whole way of running the business and that's really why this new digital world is becoming so important it, it's we're getting to this in, into that world where we've got to make quick decisions and, and uh, make it quicker than our competitors so we can survive. Absolutely. And I think that's, I mean, that's a great, great, you know, kind of movement into, you know, again, staying on the theme of transformation here mm. um, where supply chains, you know, and I've talked to a number of people, including my own direct experience where the supply chain organization for so long has just been kept in the, you know, the, the closet of the business, right there, even yes. though they manage, the lion's share, and I'm talking 50, 60, 70% of the overall spend of a business, right? Yes. They're the least respected within the organization. Sales always yes. comes first or marketing or even HR, finance. 
Um, but that's changing. And so there's a, there's a transformation not only going on in supply chain as a concept, uh, but also as an organization's, tra they're transforming and making supply chain more prominent, more C-level direct reports, yes. right? Becoming a part of the strategy of the business because it has to be, it is the business. It is the center. It, it is. The, I make the point, it is the business. It's about, yeah. as you say, take the assets, take the working capital, all those things. It's about 80% of the business. Mm-hmm. In, uh, you know, and, and, if, and you, really, if you haven't transformed that, you, you yeah. haven't transformed your business. No, exactly. Right? And, Everything and, else and is, it, is, is rapid. Exactly. And in fact, in one of my books, I make that very point. I mean, these are the little things you, you sort of have these blinding glimpses of the obvious in the middle of the night, you wake up thinking right. about these things. And, you know, I came to that conclusion some years ago that if, if, you, if you're transforming your supply chain, you're effectively transforming your business. That's a great point. Right? That's, a, that's a quote right there. Yeah. And the other thing I'd say to you, just to your earlier point, is that the, the, the fine, the, the people are now starting, we're getting better educated people, we, you know, we're getting more sophisticated people into this. But there's a really interesting distinction to make between the supply chain function, mm -hmm. which is the vertical function in the business that sits side by side with sales and marketing and, you know, the others, and what I call the supply chain philosophy. Now, the, the supply chain philosophy runs horizontal across the business because we, the problem we've got today, and that's why I've alluded to organization design, which I still think is the biggest problem we've got, is that we continue to hang on to the 200-year-old sort of method of managing our businesses. It come, comes from the Industrial Revolution that we manage our businesses vertically, mm. but our, our product and customers buy horizontally because when customers buy something they buy a bit of our finance a bit of our procurement a bit of our um, manufacturing a bit of our logistics uh, so on so on right and and bingo that's it and and so we we are 90 degrees out of phase with our with, with every day we go to work because we, we we're managing vertically with all our budgets but but the the product and the services flow horizontally mm -hmm. so what i'm trying to say to people is look we're never going to get around that other than to get people in the other functions in sales and in, in in production and every engineering and whatever to realize that they have got as big a contribution to make to the supply chain philosophy they are part of the supply chain in their business whether they like it or not mm -hmm. And it just turns out that the supply chain function is the one doing the, the shipping and the logistics, et cetera, the physical stuff. Right. But the rest of the, the business is also in the supply chain because if, mm -hmm. they, if, they, if they don't accept that, what will happen is that the, the, they won't perform their contribution and therefore the, uh, the, you know, the customers won't be satisfied. Right. And, and I think that's, again, a great, like you think about how, marketing as an organization really is the demand signal portion to yep. the supply chain, right? Exactly. And you need to tune it that way, right? Yep. Sales is clearly going to be on the, um, you know, the, the output side of things, uh, yeah. you know, uh, right. um, you know, kind of getting things out the door, the orders, the timing and all that sort of stuff, right? And everything else is kind of the glue in the middle and supply chain really touches all of that, right? It does. Um, and, 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 and yeah, I mean, phenomenal. And, and let me get back to sort of the transforming uh, yep. part of it. So, you know, in the midst of digitization, in the midst of, you know, un first of all, understanding supply chain, accepting it, and then beginning that transformation journey. Yep. What are you seeing are the key attributes of good transformation 
plans or strategies or, you know, tactics? You know, what, what is the hot button, you know, kind of thing if you were going to point to it today and you've got such a wealth of experience and you've got clearly uh, your colleague who's at Schneider now, who's gone from Dell and GM and now at Schneider, you know, what are the commonalities that you see in incredible transformation steps that you can articulate? Well, um, the, 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 probably the most important thing is to um, start out on, on such a journey, having a clear ob objective and a clear framework of what you're trying to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And I keep telling people, and, and there's a lot of, there's, it, just everyone, as you say, everyone in and his dog that you talk to these days tells you that they're on a transformation journey, but right. the, 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 the I, I'll make one or two points here. Um, the original transformation idea was it was a big bang. You know, a lot of this came from out of the big ERP implementations that were done over the last 20 years. Uh, and these were big, um, you know, companies like Nestle were installing SAP in 400 factories around the world. It took five years to do. It tied up a huge amount of people inside their business. And in, it, I would add, it, it, it caused a huge distraction in the business, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, at the end of all that, what would you end up with? Instead of having 50 le legacy systems, yes, you had one, one new system that you could use, but quite frankly, the data was terrific, terrible. Right. What, what, what I'm saying to people and what people are now recognizing is that we, we re we're in an age of continuous transformation. You remember, we used to talk about continuous improvement years mm -hmm. ago. Well, now I, we're coining that phrase continuous transformation because because the world outside is changing so rapidly, you can't sit out on a three or four year transformation and stick with that original agenda all the way through. You've got to be adjusting your transformation literally year by year and probably running a series of smaller transformation so you actually get some results along the way. Okay. You see what I'm saying? I'm not. I'm not too keen on this big three or mm -hmm. four year transformation because you never. You're never going to get there. And by the way, um, the the what we found is that in particularly in bricks and mortar, mortar companies where the resistance to change is so great, you very rarely ever get to the get your plan done. You know your your, your business case. Well, you you we, we, we as a, as a, as a as a you know part time product developer and software coder guy. Um, the analogy, what you just started describing to me fits right into the way we look at software development today. Yeah, it's a yeah. continuous development process. It's never yeah. done, right? It's never done, exactly. And even what you've sort of uh, uh, spoken to earlier in kind of the planning cycles where you get these two-week kind of sprints, we would call yep. it, in yep. sort of software yep. development, right? You've got, you know, kind of a, a an epic We'll call it your journey that you're trying to achieve. That's your big goal. But along the yes. way, you're doing, you know, sort of micro changes, you know, every week or two doing something. And that, that type of dynamicism yes. needs to come into supply chain operations and management as well. Right. So, exactly. and, the, and the point I'm making is that, you know, there's a lot of best practices coming out of the entire technological revolution, i.e. software is. development that can be applied to supply chain. What, what are your thoughts? On, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that, that's absolutely right. And, and I think that the, the, the other little variation on this is that I'm making, and if you have a chance to read our book, um, right at the end, we talk about making the distinction between business as usual 
and uh, and and the transformation side of the business mm-hmm. because be and and the side of the business which is where you're trying to develop the new innovations etc right mm-hmm. because if you try to mix them up and this has been one of the real failures of the past is that if you mix them up the the big grinding process driven business as usual side of the business will chomp up the 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 the, the shoots of of growth that you're trying to develop you know in mm-hmm. new new um, diversifications mm-hmm. so so we my view our view is that you you keep them separate that's what the companies that we're talking to are doing it they, they set up the, um, um, you know sort of hubs innovation mm-hmm. hubs or whatever you want to call them they try different things and when they get something that's looking like it's pretty promising they can then move it across into the main line of the business mm-hmm. and that's that leads me to the second thing and this is I'm, I'm I, I said this to you know, the, some of our clients, and it's great to see that they listen to you sometimes. But for instance, Snyder Electric have done some really interesting things. Because remember, I said they were a fabulous business, um, brand business, but they were all manufacturers. They weren't really logistics people, right? And and uh, they tried to rebrand some manufacturing into logistics and supply chain. It didn't work, so we gave that away. But what they are now doing about thinking about the future and getting change is they're looking at all the startups. So for instance, they've got a program. They've looked at in 2018, they looked at 210 startups around the world in all sorts of areas, you know, peripheral to their business, adjacent to their business, or even a long way from their business. They did a point of um, a proof of concept with about a hundred of those. And then of those hundred, they took 21 of them and they said, right, we're really going to work with the, this, this, these 21 and industrialize them and, and, and absorb them into our business and get the sort of changes we want. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not always, that's not all to do necessarily with supply chain only, mm-hmm. but it's, it brings the, the startup mindset I'm trying to get across to you is, is the thing that if you go outside and you get the startup mindset and you bring it into the business, that's a safer way of getting changed than trying to organically change the business from the inside out. And yep. so there's, there's these sorts of tricks, these sorts of new initiatives, these sorts of experimentations are going on in, in what I call the good companies who are out there paving the way because no one's got all the answers. Right. Uh, we're all looking and learning as we go. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, organizationally, I think that's also across, you know, even outside of supply chain, right? You know, businesses are learning that, you know, there is a fundamental difference. And this goes back to any, you know, Harvard Business School or whoever you want to pick out kind of article on change management. Yes. There's an absolute DNA difference between uh, uh, an operations minded individual and an innovations minded individual. Rarely do you find the two in in, in the same kind of mix, right? So you have to kind of bring that in and that helps kind of trigger a lot of that change innovation and smart companies are are moving in that direction and and, and sort of leading me then into also some of the stuff that's happening here innovation wise, transformation wise here in 2020 at the onset. I just want to float an idea by you because I think you've already kind of touched on it, which is, you know, for for what we're looking at now that we're sort of commencing this decade of supply chain and even where you begin to start, um, which is also people get overwhelmed, right? Technology itself is confusing. There's so many different technology you know, yes. pieces to the puzzle. Where do I even begin? Let me ask you this. So when I, when you look at the analog supply chain, if it's spelled out, if you've got it mapped out, 
And then you begin to apply, and this is a term that's starting to kind of, you know, gain a foothold. I'm seeing it a bunch more now is creating a digital twin strategy yes. to your supply chain. Yep. That starts you at least in the path of, because people have to recognize that, you know, when we're quote unquote digitizing our world, oftentimes we are just connecting the analog world to the yep. digital world. Yes. Right? And that's all. I mean, if I look at automobiles, an example, and autonomous vehicles, I mean, that's a great example of, you know, self-driving cars. I mean, the car itself is moving, but it's, we're just connecting the two entities of offline and online together. That's right. And then we kind of see where it goes because it changes and transforms the entire concept of, you know, transportation. Right. So, yes. you know, it seems to me, and I'm, I, you know, kind of floating this by here as a question is, you know, if people were to take away, like, where do I even begin? You know, maybe we start kind of unpacking what it means to create digital twins. And underneath that, of course, you have to have really good data. But uh, let me pause there and, and leave that as a question and get well, your comments on that. Well, I think, you know, before you get too down into the data, you, I didn't finish answering your original question, which was, you know, well, how, how do they go about the transformation? The first thing you do is you, you get out and, and you, you sort out your frame of reference. And your frame of reference which everything's got to point to is your customer base, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where the behavioral segmentation comes in. You segment the customers, you understand that you've, you've got five segments and uh, behavioral segments that you've got to satisfy. This means five different supply chain types. It, it's the analogy I'll use is it's like having five conveyor belts and you can put the same product on each of those conveyor belts and they'll be delivered differently to those customers at the end. So it's not, it's not what how Lee and these guys are talking about where, where you know, commodities went down the lean and, and, and novelty products went down the, the agile. It, any, any product can go down any of these supply chains depending on what customers are buying. Now, once you've done that, um, then you step down and say, now I've got my frame of reference. How am I going to do all this? And th this is where you start thinking about what data do I need? Because... You know, the, the, the world of big data has already swamped us mm -hmm. and, and we, we, it's beyond us how to use all that data. So we're, what we're preaching is that there's sort of two sorts of types of decision making. You've got your operation decision making and, and, and you've got your strategic and tactical stuff. And you can take care of that by building network models and you know, building, therefore designing the right sorts of configurations for your global networks and ever. But... On the operations side, uh, which will take in your, you know, your operations, your digital twin, and everything else, um, you've got to start to start saying, along my supply chain, what data do I want to collect, mm -hmm. and 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 actually specify what data that's going to help you make decisions, and then put the right sensors in along there, right? So now, by doing this, you're already starting to go halfway towards uh, blockchain, you know, using blockchain, etc., because mm -hmm. that's what blockchain is. You you, you just have data along the way. You have sensors on temperature and location and everything else. So, and then of course, the, the thing then is having, having the appropriate data and the, to run the business, you can start to analyze it and you can start producing all sorts of um, um, sort of presentations of this. And that leads you eventually to um, what I would call control towers. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the future is about either the big companies themselves having control towers 
uh, which will have, uh, you know, it'll be like a war room with people in it, uh, looking at screens and, and real time, uh, seeing things moving uh, or seeing where things are. They'll be able to answer questions to customers in a proactive way rather than waiting for customers to ring up and say, where's my delivery? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're, we're heading in that world or in for the smaller companies that can't afford a network of control towers around the world, you know, the, the, the big, uh, uh, logistics providers mm-hmm. i think are the ones who will step up and they'll have these control towers around the world and the smaller companies can step in but either way um you, you you're at we're, we're moving in that direction but we've got to understand the uh, the 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 target market and work out what we need to run our business what data do we need and then put the sensors in place to get it and use that data and analyze it to run the business rather than be flooded with too much data and getting into the topic of data lakes where you've got to pull out data, unstructured data, and that becomes a whole new question. Well, there's but, a, there's, I mean, there's a ton, there, there's so much you know, in there that I could go into even in the, I mean, what you just said is oftentimes when I lead my product teams um, and we talk about data driven, data first, like what data am I trying yep. to get out? Yep. Well, that leads then to the design of the actual software that we're building. Uh, yep. And how we build it and capture it. So, you know, just get another analogy. Yep. So, let me shift. Let me shift just and keep moving forward in the transforming uh, side of thing. The digital twins. Now, another concept that uh, and you brought up control towers, right? And I want to. Yep. I'm going to underpin that a little bit with, or, or or come underneath that a little bit with, you know, value webs, right? Yep. So historically, you know, as you have written about, you know, in the analog supply chain world, you know, things were very linear and very sequential but that is no longer the way things can run. So, you know, when you talk about dynamic supply chains, you allude to it and we get to these things, you know, value webs. Can you talk to that? What's your, what what are your thoughts on what that is and how to define that and kind of where that leads to some of the technology decisions that we're, you know, organizations and supply chain leaders are going to be making. I haven't done a lot of work in value webs per se myself. What Mm -hmm. I think you're, um, you're talking about there is, the emerging world of networks of networks mm-hmm. where, 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 you know, companies each with their own network are going to be joining up with other networks mm-hmm. so that, you know, we, we form this because supply chain has gone through this sort of three stages, you know, initially it was about um, just an individual company having a supply chain that it could uh, use as a competitive weapon on its own standing mm-hmm. on its own mm-hmm. then in in the 80s and 90s 2000s we we went into the world of supply chains versus supply chains and probably the the best example of that would be the um um uh, airlines you know who even though they compete they 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 share facilities they share spare parts jet engines and so on mm-hmm. and 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 if you happen to be in one world versus um uh, a lot the alliance you know, depends on how good your members are. You 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 will you will do well. Now we've moved into the next three-dimensional world, which is the world of networks and networks. And I think we're we're so early into that that yep. we 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 just probably you you folks in the in the software business are further ahead than any of us at the moment. And understand? I, I don't know if we're further ahead. We've just been thinking about it probably yeah. a little bit longer. But that's that's yeah. about it. I don't think we're ahead of anybody. I don't know of any companies really that've got the networks and networks thing going. Right. You know, in practice, right. other than other than 
um, the high tech type companies. I think it's aspirational, to be honest, right? Mm. It just it, it, it's the natural conclusion, I believe, of where things ultimately go, right? Mm. And I think with value webs and and you know, kind of the emerging or whatever whatever you want to call the term, but all, everything, including the assets themselves, are going to be connected online in some way, shape, or form. Yes. Right. And yes. if you buy into that, then there's a lot of uh, synergy uh, organizations can bring both, you know, from not only within themselves, but within their industries and then across yes. industries, just like yes. you're sort of alluding to with some of these industries that have, yes. you know, co-opted their buying, i.e. airlines to drive down fuel prices or something yeah. like that, yeah. right? That, that, that concept can be applied in greater, um, uh, 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 greater numbers when you've got everything connected, you know, for your supply chain. Exactly. There, there's, there's, there is a, already ex, some example, early examples of those, early, well, okay, early examples, and we, the term that's been given to them is infomediaries. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a term um, one of my colleagues in the US um, came up with. And the, the idea of the infomediary is it's, again, like an industry-level um, black box where data of all levels comes in, you know, data about the weather, the environment, the mm -hmm. um, uh, pricing structures, you know, and, and analysts inside that um, black box, confidential black box, will do the analysis and then give back the contributing members in that industry their own data mm -hmm. and, the, and the aggregate data. So they don't see the competitor but they see their own data and the aggregate, if you know what I mean. So, mm -hmm. and that's very valuable to understand how to run. So we, 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 we're sort of, the, we, we, there, are, there is an example of that in Australia where the four big banks uh, who are very fierce competitors got together and, and formed a company, uh, which was one of these, and they used this company to move about $5 billion of cash around the economy each night logistically you know collecting money from atms and or filling up atms and collecting money from retailers but all of it was done even though that was owned by all four of them the company was independent and secure but like fort knox you couldn't get into it because the data had to be protected and i think that's the that's going to be the big that's the big uh, what's the word uh, challenge with these um uh, sort of value webs and intermediaries is how do we protect um, the data that needs to be protected and make sure that only the people who get what they should get, get, get what they get, if you yep. like. And that's going to be, that's, you know, that's a, a, a persistent problem with, with a hyperly connected world without question, yep. right? I mean, that, that traverses everything that has to do with data. So let me, let me, let me kind of, you know, get into sort of where we're at, you know, looking, looking out at 2020 and maybe the next couple of years, you know, mm -hmm. what, how do you see, you know, the work that you're doing and what are you going to be doing, right, in your own work over the next year or two? And I got a big conference schedule coming up this year, you know, what are you, yep. what, you know, A, what are you doing? And then B, what are you seeing the industry kind of react to as, as, as you're getting out there over the next well, year? Well, look, in terms of the industry, I mean, I, I think there's a huge opportunity for what I call the industrial bricks and mortar companies. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll lump in with them, pharma companies, mm -hmm. who are a fair way behind, to close the gap with, um, on FMCG and electronic high-tech companies by, by really, you know, transforming their businesses, um, speeding up. Uh, the internal decision-making processes and sorting out their cost efficiencies. But the other thrust 
of mine this year is very much to push this idea that that supply chains are there to drive to have a major contribution to top line growth mm -hmm. i think growth is becoming a real problem in this sort of world we're in and if the supply chain can be better geared to support and drive the top line growth for instance in Snyder electric not only did they take huge amount about a billion dollars or euros out of their business and costs over the last uh, seven or eight years they incre increased their revenue through the improved customer satisfaction that their customers are getting through their supply chain right and and so top line growth is going to be a push the the other thing is i'm really going to be pushing hard on um ways of um getting the transformation done and getting top line growth at the same time. Mm -hmm. And this, this talks to a concept first introduced by Jim Collins some years ago called um, the flywheel effect. Yep. And the flywheel effect is all about generating, um, first of all, working out what you want to do and then doing it really well and, and get overcoming inertia and gradually turning that flywheel, which is the business faster and faster and faster to the point it, where it gets to become uh, almost a perpetual motion and you can't stop it if you know mm -hmm. what I mean, right? Mm -hmm. So his work with that he did with Amazon is probably the major reason why Amazon went from where they were in 2001 to where they are today because mm -hmm. they, you know, they, they developed this flywheel of lower prices through more offerings, more customer visits, attract more third-party sellers, expand what the, the the categories they're in grow the revenues great faster than their fixed costs and then just keep doing that right mm -hmm. and so so the flywheel effect is a big one um and that's so and what that does it builds momentum and i don't know whether you've heard that term before and used in the supply chain context but i think the good companies have got to find ways to not only just transfer transform their businesses at a point in time, but they've got to transform them to the point where this relentless um, flywheel effect is going to give them the momentum that's going to drive a lot of their future profits, their, their top line and their bottom line. So I'm working on, on that. So all the things that, that um, can um, set the company up to mm -hmm. cope with the volatile thing. And the other thing is sustainability. I think that we've got to do all of this faster and, and and at a lower cost but in a more sustainable way because you know this whole thing that's been happening in australia has brought um uh, world attention if you like more yeah. and more to the, the inaction of governments yeah. and and i think sustainability in all its forms is going to come back and the supply chains in the middle of that so we've got to do a little, all the things we talked about but do it in a sustainable way as well well, arguably, the supply chain, the aggregate supply chain, as we sort of talked at the very beginning of our conversation, the aggregate supply chain is probably going to have the single biggest impact on sustainability yep. than anything else in this world. Exactly. Right? Because all yep. of our net new resources are consumed by the aggregate supply chain. Yep. And if the supply chain can pivot to um, either reuse within itself um, existing materials, which then preclude the need to consume new resources or find alternative, alternative inputs to those raw goods, um, yes. you know, i.e. 3D printing or something like that, right? Um, you know, that's where 
you know, that's the, the, you know, supply chain practitioners, they're actually going to be leading the charge in global exactly. sustainability. Exactly. That, that's right. exactly what's going to happen. I think. I think we and and that fits well with this idea of the rising awareness of the supply chain that I mm-hmm. talk about. You know, well, and, and I think you touched on it as well too. Is that supply chain is you know again in my experience, and I I, I just I remember I I was you know when I brought into it myself early on, and and you know was shocked at you know being sort of beat on for costs all the time. Yeah, and in exactly. fact, you could turn around and look at revenue generation or margin improvement as a part of the function of supply chain. Yes. So it has the dual, again, as the business within the business, you know, it's always been looked at as a cost center. But in fact, if you start thinking of it as a revenue enhancer, a revenue center or a margin improver, you really think differently about supply chain practitioners, you know, and where they fit strategically in the organization. And, and that leads to the point that we haven't mentioned them, but, but in the good companies these days, uh, the chief supply chain officer has, uh, procurement, manufacturing, and logistics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think uh, the procurement is an area we've really got to get on top of. In too many companies, it's it's it reports separately to the chief financial officer or somewhere else, and it does its own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've got to do all the things that we talked about today about doing at the front end, you know, understanding customers, uh, reverse engineering the processes back, building supply chains that are. are aligned we've got to do at the back end as well we've got to segment our suppliers we've got to look at the you know treating them differently in different situations and just get away from this buying mentality which is still existing out there because uh, typically procurement people get rewarded short term on the on the savings they can make which very often can affect adversely what's going on at the front end of the business And and I'll I'll take you a step further, uh, and, and maybe you've thought of this too. But you know, one of the things that that jumped out at me early on, besides in procurement, you know, clearly, is the back end of the actual disposition process of those oh, assets, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Because no yeah. one pays attention to that. And if no. I go buy, you know, if, I, if I'm Shell and I buy two hundred fifty billion dollars worth of stuff in any given year to fuel the business, but then I use that stuff and pretty much forget about it at the end when it's fully depreciated or used or whatever. That $250 million of stuff at some point in time, five, 10, 15 years down the road, you should probably get it, you know, first getting 10% of your money back because all that stuff's still worth something, right? Yep. And if you yep. want to have an impact on sustainability, then you find a way to reuse that gear, whether it's internally or at least expose it to a global market that I guarantee will reuse that stuff because it has longevity to it, right? So I, I, I you know, I, I would add the back end of procurement is actually disposition and it's it's been wrongly incented in the organization to, you know, uh, have this sort of fictional, you know, uh, uh, cost avoidance kind of thing, which I always never really liked because it was very, very uh, uh, ethereal, right? You couldn't really yes. put, a, put, a, put, put math to it. Uh, and instead tied to not only am I buying things at a certain cost, but on the, t- the TCO calculation, what am I getting rid of it for? And I should be incenting my supply chain organization to maximize the sale value of anything that I'm getting rid of out of the business. Yes. No, it's just just something to think about. Well, listen, John, we, we sort of couldn't come. <laughs> I, honestly, we could keep going here for days, um, and I do want to be mindful of time and kind of where we're at here. But you know, it, you know, what's going on for you in 2020? I know you got a bunch of conferences. You got an exciting, you know, the yep. you know, book just came out. But you know, what's you know, you told me earlier. Okay. But you know, tell me about what's happening coming up in 2020. I guess my major thrust, you know, if you wanted to put it in a word, this sort of came to me, and I, I should make the point that everything that. I've learned over the years has always come from using 
companies as, as my laboratory, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, the scientists like physicists and, and chemists have got laboratories that they fiddle around in and make discoveries and have theories and then prove them. We in this management field um, don't have that. And our own lab, only laboratories are really companies. And by going in and working with them and trying different things. And so I, I guess my most recent work in San, San Francisco uh, last year with a major um, global um, pharmaceutical company who've got some of the most fabulous drugs coming out you know along the way and they want to design a, a patient-driven supply chain that will deliver these drugs to right to the patient's bed um, what what I was thinking of what it, what it led me to think about is what a wonderful science that these people have got you know when we're talking about Silicon Valley and you know in there and the science they apply why can't we apply a similar level of science to our supply chains Mm -hmm. because otherwise we have these million dollar 10 million dollar type single shot drugs that you know cure cancer Um, but then we can't get them we can't deliver them well or in the right condition or whatever so i guess my if you wanted to uh, put it in a word what our thrust is this year in our thought leadership is very much to keep building the science of the supply chain Mm -hmm. and that's going to be um, very much trying to um, still with the underlying theme of transformation because everyone needs to transform but trying to work on uh, things like clock speed trying Mm -hmm. to get work work out practical ways to increase the clock speed in the business try to get that relentless implementation methods done so that's the flywheel effect and, and the other thing is to, in a sense, use the hummingbird effect, which is to look for innovations where they're, where, where they're not obvious, mm-hmm. to try to bring innovation into the supply chain from uh, areas where it's not obvious, uh, you know, that innovation exists and try to m- join the dots and bring things across and, and get a leapfrog effect in, in supply chain to really get it up there and then finally you know at working at the level we do with these retreats with 30 or 40 senior executives and a lot of them are ceos really trying to get them to understand that that, that this is the business mm-hmm. supply chain is the business and you've got to treat it as such that's that's my ongoing sort of um, campaign well, i can't imagine a better person at the onset of the decade of supply chain to be leading that charge, holding up the, the, the microphone, standing on the bully pulpit and, 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 and preaching that message. <laughs> <laughs> I hope just so. sounds fantastic. Um, yeah. Now, John, uh, um, uh, I, I don't want to put anything out there that you want to put out there, but uh, if people want to connect with you, um, yep. you're open to connections on LinkedIn. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I'm, you can, I think I've got 15,000 members on my LinkedIn. People wow. can contact me or they can just say, you can give them my email. I mean, I'm very happy to just, because uh, that's again, how we learn. Um, we, we learn by doing and learn by listening and learn by talking. And we, and we learn through our, those retreats we do, even though we put a lot of good stuff out there, thought leadership, a lot of our research is live Yep. there with those people and, it's, and that's really where we got the the idea of transformation we had to do something about it about three years ago everyone was talking about it. so please put people in touch and mm-hmm. when when we firm up our details for san francisco um, i'd like to have you as my guest there um and um, and i'll get you to perhaps put out a note to your uh, cohorts uh, so they're aware of uh, oh absolutely oh absolutely doing 
Yeah. Absolutely. would love to do it. And, um, you know, so John can't thank you enough. I mean, this is just a great way to kick off uh, the podcast for this year, kick off, uh, you know, again, this sort of decade of supply chain. I mean, just incredible conversation. Don't forget the independent Republic of the supply chain. Right. right. Yeah. I, I mean, that I love, I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's that, something that that's, I think there's, that's, that's a new book. Up, that's a new book. <laughs> that's a new book. That's yeah. a new book. I mean, I there's your new title. I tell you, I can't take credit for it, but um, that's you know, okay. You can you can give credit. It's like you know, it's like Wikipedia. You just cite who it is, right? And yeah. you just put it in there. But no, I love the. I mean, that's and I and I truly and and I think you, you know, invariably. And I I can keep going on this one, but but what you're describing there to me over the next decade is actually going to materialize via the platforms that all of these supply chain organizations are going to adopt because those platforms will be centralized. Um, yes. And you're going to you're going to really you know bring together all the piece parts by connecting on there. So um, exactly. Thank you so much, John. I mean, again, My really pleasure. appreciate it. Uh, again, Dr. John Gatorni here on Supply Chain Next. Been a fabulous interview, and um, you know we wish you all the best here. And I look forward to meeting you in person too when you're here in San Francisco. Look forward to that very much, Richard. And uh, please stay in touch. <laughs>